Governance podcast from the Centre for Studying Governance and Society. My name is Mark Pennington and I'm the Centre's director. In recent episodes of the podcast, we've been exploring problems of knowledge, ignorance and uncertainty and their implications in various governance domains. One area where these issues continue to be prominent is the governance of financial risk. In conditions where it's hard to predict how agents will respond to a given situation, and the possibility of error, whether by private agents or by those who regulate their behaviour, is pronounced. And this raises important questions about the kind of rules that may minimise or reduce the likelihood of major crises, such as 2008, and what some, to con con some consider to be the near banking crisis we are currently living through. I'm very pleased to say that I have with me today a very distinguished guest who's been grappling with these challenges, both in a theoretical and in a very practical sense for some time. Andrew Haldane is CEO of the Royal Society of Arts. And prior to that, he worked for over 30 years as an economist at the Bank of England and for a time was chief economist. Andy, welcome. It's great to have you with us on the Governance Podcast. Well, Mark, thank you very much for that lovely introduction. I really look forward to the discussion we're going to have about those issues, some of which are old, but many of which, as you hinted, are pretty topical right now as well. Yeah, well, I mean, speaking of that, I'd like to take you back to, I think it was 2012, when you gave what's become quite a famous speech in some circles entitled The Dog and the Frisbee. And in that speech, which I certainly learned a lot from, you contrast a kind of predict and control model of financial risk management, which sees the management of risk as really quite a relatively simple problem that can be addressed by having greater number of, numbers of rules to make up for the various information gaps that face private decision makers with a model that sees financial systems as really too complicated or too complex to be regulated in this way. So I wonder if we could start off with my asking you to explain a little bit more your understanding of the difference between simple and complex systems and how this plays out in your own analysis of financial markets and the governance problems they represent. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Let me try and speak to some of those questions about simplicity and about complexity. I mean, I think my favourite definition of a complex system, which I think is borrowed probably from, from Herbert Simon, is a system in which there are many moving parts which interact in non-trivial ways and which therefore give rise to system-wide behaviours that are very difficult, in some cases impossible, to predict in advance. And the key points there are, you know, many moving interacting parts. As soon as you have any system, could be a natural system, could be a social system, with many moving parts, that interact in non-trivial ways, you start to get behaviours that are hard to make sense of, that are in the lingo emergent yeah. over time. They evolve over time. They're very hard to predict ahead of time. And that framework for thinking, that complex systems framework for thinking, has been widely applied in a great many disciplines. Other of the social sciences, sociology, anthropology, a great many of the natural sciences, 
biology, chemistry, to a degree, aspects of physics, but have not been applied as readily when it came to making sense of the economy or of the financial system, despite the fact that they very obviously do contain many moving parts that tend to interact in non-trivial ways, the upshot of which is often emergent or hard to predict behaviours, the like of which we saw from the financial system back in 08-09. So although when I wrote that paper a decade ago now, as it was, that did draw sort of sharp intakes of breath and sucking of teeth and pursing of lips by the regulators, because I presented it this, this sort of central banking shindig, Jackson Hole. In fact, I wasn't doing very much more than applying a framework for thinking that was pretty ubiquitous when it came to making sense of most other systems on the planet, whether natural or or social or physical. Yeah, well, I mean, if, if, if I just follow up on that a little bit, I mean, I wonder if you could say why you think economists may be I would say rather resistant to this way of thinking because if you actually look back in time there are economists who have thought about economic systems and regulatory systems in this way so in a lot of Keynes's writings there's a great deal of emphasis on uncertainty and unpredictable the unpredictable nature of the future and on the other end if you like you acceptance speech, the pretense of knowledge. So both of those thinkers in different ways were very much focused on this idea of the, the future being to some extent unpredictable. So why is it that so many contemporary economists seem maybe resistant to that kind of idea? It's, it's a very interesting point, Mark. Yeah, I mean, you're quite right that many of the intellectual economic titans of the 20th century, you mentioned Keynes, mentioned Hayek, Friedman was cut from similar cloth, although they were, in a sense, sometimes in quite ideological dif different places, they all, they all recognised, you know, ignorance, the not knowing, as being absolutely central to the, to the setting of, of policy. I mean, Friedman's K percent monetary policy rule was the ultimate simple rule born yeah. of not wanting central bankers to be fine-tuning too much. Why is it then that economics found itself increasing in the latter part of the 20th century going down a somewhat different path? Well, I think there was a desire to price things as accurately as possible, whether those things were goods and services or whether those things were financial assets of various types. And when it comes to the latter of those, the sort of standard Merton Markowitz approach to the pricing of financial assets, that could be done in the most convenient and clearest way, in a way where the probability distribution of possible future outcomes was itself known. Hmm. And therefore, you could put a price a fairly well-defined price yeah. on risk where within that distribution you ended up landing. 
And that's not to say those frameworks were tremendously useful. And of course, they were very useful and remain very useful for, for the pricing of risk. But what they did take out of the equation, literally take out of the equation, was the not knowing. Those situations where the distribution was not known, but rather was, was, was unknown or possibly unknowable. Yeah. And the desire to make economics scientific, the desire for precision of pricing were understandable features of those working in the discipline. But the shortcut assumptions that under underpinned and underlay those models end up in reality often being violated, particularly at times of acute stress. You know, in normal times, perhaps in, in peacetime, those models perform passably well when uncertainties are not acute. But of course, when they do spring forth, those models very quickly fall apart. And I think that was, for me, why economics and finance didn't take a misstep, but in their desire for scientific precision, and I suppose a degree of credibility, they made some what after the fact looked like quite heroic assumptions that have certainly not been borne out by the data over the past few years, Mark. I mean, obviously you're referring there to, to economists. I mean, in your experiences, and I think actually you gave that the speech that I, I, I started off the conversation mentioning, I think you were giving it more to, to regulators. Do you feel that regulators also have that that mindset? It's it's not just something that's sort of shared by economists or, or are regulators because they are sort of in touch with the daily realities, perhaps more in some senses, in some cases than economists, are they more aware of the the sort of issues that are involved here? I think they have become over time progressively aware of them. In some ways, the defining moment there was the financial crisis, yeah. where the models that had built up a real pace pre-crisis and used both within firms and by regulators, you know, in a way, what we saw pre the global financial crisis was an increasing reliance on internal bank models by regulators. So they were both relying on these very complex, often quite unwieldy asset pricing beasts, which when push came to shove, when the crisis broke, basically fractured in their hands and were no longer a useful guidepost to gauging how much risk banks were bearing. Individually, much less much less collectively. I think scarred by that experience, both banks and their regulators, I, would, I should say, there has been a drift, I wouldn't put it any more dramatically than that, Mark, towards asking more difficult questions about the robustness of models, seeking to simplify them, streamline them, and accompanying that, putting in place additional regulatory thresholds that were less reliant on the pricing of risk, the fine-tuned pricing of risks. An example of that would be the regulators post-global financial crisis introducing a so-called leverage ratio, 
which doesn't seek to precisely calibrate the risks on banks' balance sheets. And to have that leverage ratio sit alongside the capital ratios that banks hold as a sort of bell and braces, recognizing that those risk prices that feed into the capital ratio might not be reliable when 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 uncertainties are very are very are very acute. So I think we have seen a, a greater acknowledgement among regulators and banks mm. of the need to take uncertainty seriously. I mean, stress testing would be another example where you know that's an exercise designed to take a, a quite extreme point in the distribution and ask what the implications of that are for bank solvency and liquidity. That too is in the spirit of kind of not knowing. So I think we've seen progress. You'll probably pick up from the tone of my voice. Do I think enough progress has been made to recognize this? Probably almost certainly not. Yeah. But it's been directionally right, even though the end point, the regulatory endpoints of the system, for me, is still far too filled itself with complexity and therefore with uncertainty. And the, the key point there, I'd say, Mark, is there's no question the financial system is complex. Yeah. And therefore, there's a natural gravitational pull towards needing a complex regulatory framework to regular this complex beast and that sounds reasonable but it turns out it's completely wrong because that then compounds the complexity problem rather than simplifying it so actually the right response to a complex system is to put in place not complex but simple rules that are then more likely to be robust and resilient to not knowing to getting it wrong, if you like. So could you give us maybe a couple of illustrations of what, what would be the distinction in this, this context between a simple rule that you think would be appropriate to managing some of these issues and more complex rules that are really basically too complicated and therefore yeah. not as resilient as, as a more simple rule, just to sort of maybe bring it home to people what what that yeah. distinction implies. Yeah, let me give a couple that, that, that speak in that direction. I mean, I, I've hinted at one already. So the kind of mainstay of re regulation was this, were capital ratios, which is basically the value of a bank's capital or equity, if you like, or equity-like instruments on the numerator, on, on the denominator, a bank's assets weighted by their riskiness. Yeah. That's a very complex thing because the bank's got lots of assets and they're all different risk weights. A much simpler alternative on the denominator of that ratio is to weight every asset equally, to give them equal weighting rather than seeking to risk weight them in a fine-tuned fashion. And that's what a leverage ratio is. It is robust to not knowing how risky the different assets on a balance sheet are. Second example, different type of simplest, simple rule actually, would be to seek to separate, physically separate, on the balance sheet of a financial firm, assets of different types. Let's say risky investment banking type activities from traditional commercial banking type activities. Now the Glass-Eagle Act from the 1930s in the US 
did precisely that separation for precisely those reasons. After the global financial crisis, there was another debate about should we bring Glass-Steagall back? The forced separation of assets of different risk types in the US didn't quite go that far. They put in place instead a so-called Volcker rule, which separated off the proprietary trading activities of US banks from other activities. The same principle, same simple principle, albeit applied in a different way. Here in the UK, as part of the proposals put forward by the Commission on Banking, chaired by John Vickers, there was the so-called ring fencing of assets, legal separation, if you like, of traditional banking activities supporting households and companies from banks, other including investment banking activities. Again, a simple-ish rule as a way of separating assets and separating assets of different risk types rather than assigning different prices to them. So those are a couple of examples of the application of effectively this way of thinking, simple rules for a complex system in the financial domain. I mean, a third, again, from a somewhat different angle, would be in the market for derivatives, in particular, the market for over-the-counter derivatives. And the requirement after the global financial crisis, they should be traded not in a bilateral way between financial firms, which made this very complex cat's cradle of interactions between those firms, but rather uh, through a so-called central counterparty, so that every financial firm in a network had a sequence of bilateral transactions yeah. with this central counterparty in a more hub-and-spokes type configuration rather than the cat's cradle that had pre-existed. A much simpler topology of the derivatives network and hopefully, therefore, a more robust and resilient one. So two or three examples there, Mark, of, of how the kind of the, the ethos of complex systems found its way <laughs> into the regulatory pocketbook. I mean, it strikes me, I find, I find these examples and I find this way of thinking very, very convincing, but we, we need to recognise that regulation of any kind always takes place in a sort of political setting, yeah. where there are narratives or ways that sort of everyday people, as well as regulators, think about the world. And it strikes me that in a way, and that there's a bit of an irony in this, I guess, that this is a complex argument to actually present to the general public. Yeah. And yeah. there's a general belief, it seems to me, you know, sort of widely expressed in the media that the problem over the last 20 or 30 years, whatever time frame you may look at, is the idea that there's not been enough regulation. Okay. Whereas your argument and people who think like you is rather more subtle. It's saying really it's not a question of whether you have too much or too little regulation. It's about the kind or the style of regulation. And so making this argument for simple rules rather than more rules, it does actually require this slightly counterintuitive form of thinking. Yeah. And I wonder, is, is, there any, is there any advice? Are there any kind of, 
I mean, it's a bit unfair to ask you kind of communication tips you could almost give to <laughs> regulators or politicians about how they can actually convey this to a public which is sceptical and more sympathetic to the to the simpler view that if there's a problem, we just need more rules. Yeah, I mean, a challenge is a really good one. I'm sure I'll not rise to it, Mark, but let me have a go anyway. And I mean, there is an important point there. I mean, you, you, you are right that the vast majority of the public find it fiendishly difficult to understand finance and almost impossibly difficult to understand the financial system, you know, what it's up to, how it's being regulated. And they shouldn't have to worry about those things. I mean, the whole point is that finance isn't working if people are having to worry about those things on a day-to-day -day basis. How is that best secured? Well, I mean, the job of regulation is to, is to do that for the general public, to have them not worry about the risks they might inadvertently be running. I think in doing that, I mean, the key point is that it's the quality of regulation or the, the, the strength of the insurance policy rather than the quantity of regulation or the number of insurance policies that really matters. That's the at the core of this. The what you need as a general public is assurance that your money is safe, that your lending will be forthcoming. And that's a quality of regulation and a quality of balance sheet issue, not how many complex or detailed rules that we that the banks have to have to abide by. So I think this is a this is a winnable argument, I think, with the public. And I think it's a it's an argument that you would want to have all the time, but you would want periodically to remind politicians of. Because the natural tendency over time, the further the distance you get away from a crisis, that people want, want to start watering down. And I think the there's no perfect antidote to that. We'll look against that. But saying, okay, streamlining the quantity of regulation is fine but let's not compromise on the quality because that way problems that way problems lie and i think that helps in, in making a more compelling case about what is undoubtedly a, a complex topic well I, I really like that that phrasing of saying that it's about the the quality of the insurance rather than the complexity. I mean, I think, sorry, rather than the quantity. I think that's uh, that's a really way, good, good way of putting it. I think it's also important to emphasize in this this kind of debate that, I mean, what you're saying or, or, or people who are using the same kind of thinking, they're not saying that complexity itself is bad because we actually benefit from being in a, in a complex economy, a complex division of labor that none of us can completely comprehend. Yeah. So it's not an attack on complexity it's, as such, it's more, what kind of rules do you need in a complex situation? And I think it's important not to forget that aspect of the, the equation as well. I think that, that is absolutely right. The, the, we know that there are great benefits to, yeah, if the essence of complexity is connectivity, which it is, we know there are great benefits from connectivity, whether that's social connectivity, knowing people, or financial connectivity, sharing risks around the system, or it's connectivity of goods and services. That's how our economy runs. That's how the global economy runs. All of those things 
all those connectivities, degrees of connectivity are, are viewed as being valuable and virtuous in nurturing social capital, when it's between people or financial capital, when it's between financial firms or economic capital, when it comes to trades in goods and, and services, either within countries or indeed across countries. But we need also to recognize that that complexity or that connectivity does come at some cost. And one of those costs is that it does make for a world that is slightly more knife edge, slightly more fragile mm -hmm. uh, in its dynamics. And we've seen that, of course, repeatedly. We saw it at the time of the global financial crisis when it came to flows of finance. We saw it in COVID when it came to flows of pretty much anything across, mm -hmm. across borders. And we'll keep on finding you know, these examples of, of supply chains seizing up periodically and that causing a jerky movement in the system as a whole. And, and the, the key is not to row back on that connectivity, but to, to manage it in a way that, that minimizes the chances of, of damage when the, when the network hits a problem. So you're right, it's a very important point to to, to get across. I mean, let's take the situation right now. So what COVID, one of the things that COVID did was to demonstrate the perils of over-relying on international supply chains. International supply chains had grown, deepened and lengthened for about 50 years for good reasons, in a way that improved growth both in individual countries and in the global economy as a whole. And that worked brilliantly right up to the point where those deep and long and complex supply chains seized up. And all of a sudden, we discovered we couldn't get our hands on PPE because we'd been sourcing all of that from other countries and they weren't supplying it anymore. And that it was very really similar to the situation that many banks found themselves in when credit chains rather than supply chains broke in 0809. Now, the risk is that in, in response to that, people say, look, we need to make everything at home, right? We just need to build our own. We need to grow our own everything. I think it will be the false response. You know, if that, you know, in, in the trade sphere, if that led to people rowing back on the global trading system or even pursuing overtly protectionist or mercantilist policies, the cost of that would be felt by everyone. What you do need to recognize though, is that at least for some goods and services, having alternative source of supply is really important. You know, that's what resilience or redundancy means, that you have a second channel if the first channel ceases up. And that's a good lesson to learn from a complex connected world, there's some risk of people learning the wrong lessons and, and drawing the wrong conclusions. And, and that's why these issues are really first order importance, Mark. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the, the pandemic is a, is a very interesting case. I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't ask you to, you know, say what you think the right responses to or, or should have been to the pandemic as such but i think it's an interesting question from this complexity angle because you can think of a virus itself 
in terms of the way it interacts with the environment as a kind of complex system. It's a kind of yep. emergent process through which a virus spreads. You can also think of the, the human populations it's interacting with as another complex dynamic. And then you've got people's attempt to regulate that as a further element of complexity. So you've got multiple interacting complex systems in something like the pandemic management. So, I mean, obviously different countries, different jurisdictions approached it differently, but is there anything you think that we can take from the pandemic in terms of simple rules for a complex problem? Or do you think it's just, you know, it, there's a limit to how far we can push that kind of thinking? No, I think, I think, I think the pandemic in some ways was a even better example of the potency of these forces and, and principles that was the global financial crisis. As you say, the defining characteristic then was that we didn't just have a complex system imploding, we had an interlocking complex system of systems imploding. We had the health system facing up this challenge at the same time as the economic system was basically this challenge at the same time as wider society was facing this challenge at the same time as the global trading system was facing, you know, and it, it was a, a complex system of systems challenge. I mean, I, I think when you think about how we've managed our way through some of that, I think for me, a couple of points I thought were quite striking. One was, and I thought those setting out the case this very elegantly, had a way of bringing the uncertainties to the public domain really quite effectively. So we all became amateur statisticians and we all got into the habit of, of being shown different scenarios, what might come to pass given the extent of uncertainty. And, and I think that was, if you like, living proof of, of how even very complex problems can be distilled to a general public if you think, think hard about how to do that. Of course, the other way in which we conveyed simple, conveyed regulatory, if you like, messages to the public is through very simple words and symbols. So, you know, it did boil down to, you know, stay indoors, wear a mask, wash your hands. I mean, those were the heuristics, the simple rules the, were the guiding star for all of us in making sense of a fiendishly complex set of problems. Yeah, a detailed rule book would have landed like a lead balloon, right, in that situation. Yeah. The public would not have understood it and would not have yeah. abided by it. They need one or two simple things to get straight. And, and that's why I think, you know, eventually we landed on a, a method of managing this which recognised the uncertainty and turned that into some simple but robust rules for avoiding harm and ideally doing some good. I mean, it, I wonder whether in, in some sense, you, you know, lessons can be learned from this more, more broadly in the sense of public understandings of, of, of politics and policy making. I mean, you mentioned there that people got used to hearing about different scenarios. I mean, I don't, I don't I'm not sure this has come out of the pandemic, but one thought I had was that maybe people could start to see that politicians from whichever party it may be you know can't just pull a lever and crank an output 
whether it's in terms of you know getting a better outcome from a pandemic response or whatever it may be because they are dealing with systems with many complex parts so i wonder whether you know there's some hope that we may you know get within society more generally that decision makers at multiple levels are dealing with very very complex problems and that we shouldn't expect in a sense too much from them we should have a decent expectations, but you can't expect always that there are going to be clear cut solutions that people can readily identify which lever they need to pull. I think there's a very important point in there and then partly this, uh, this is about how we present our knowledge. I mentioned that when it came to the pandemic, those setting out what might happen next did so in a in a way that recognized, I, I felt a very acute degree of uncertainty that existed at every stage of the pandemic. And we found a way of doing that, that, that was understandable and explicable. I mean, interestingly, I mean, going way back, one of the things when I, in my previous job at the Bank of England, that we tried to do when it came to macro forecasting, is also to convey that sense of not knowing by putting effectively a, a probability distribution, we call it a fan chart, around our forecasts. And then at the time we're seeing, seems to be kind of pretty out there, but what was a similar sort of attempt to kind of lay bare how much we didn't know about the course of the economy, which, you know, turned out to be quite a lot that we didn't know about the course of, didn't know about the course of the economy. So that's on the sort of presentation, I think, of, uh, of the risks. I think when it comes to the execution of policy, an equally hefty dose of humility is is needed about you know what is really what is realistically within the control and compass of policymakers with the tools at their tools at their disposal. I mean those things don't come easily, of course, because what the public wants from a public authority is authority and yes. saying you don't know or can't control gives the impression of not being especially authoritative yes. but we need to get over you know we need to get over ourselves on that no one has done any good by us giving any impression of uh, omniscience or omnipotence when it comes to controlling outcomes i would say on that i think i think policymakers have become better at doing that central banks have become better at saying look uh, energy prices have gone up huge amounts there is a limit in what we can do we could do to one predict that and to control that with the tools at our disposal and that is a i think a rightful recognition of the limits of policy and the humility of policymakers that the public actually are understanding of are understanding of when it when it's said in those terms yeah well i mean my hope is very much that if people can see this kind of complexity and they they can have that sort of humility you're referring to it would actually improve the quality of public debate that it would be less yeah. maybe confrontational if if everybody recognizes that we're all dealing with challenges where it really isn't clear that you know there's ambiguity is something that we kind of have to live with and sort of grow up about it really in a way i think that's true i i it builds credibility when you don't know the right answer is don't know and that for me is not credibility denting no. it's you know what's a 
a truthful recognition of the reality of the situation. To the public will understand that because they deal with a whole bunch of things that they don't know either. What is what is damaging for credibility is pretending you do, and after the fact, it being shown that you don't. That's a that's an unforgivable risk. Not knowing is a forgivable one. Yeah. Well, on this issue of complexity, I wonder whether we could just, before we close, sort of discuss another one of the the, the areas that you've been involved in in recent years. So you, you've contributed quite a bit to the sort of so-called levelling up debate in the UK, and I know you did some work in that sort of area, this whole question of how we try to address regional inequalities in the UK, trying to sort of ameliorate some of those. And it strikes me this is another case where there really aren't straightforward levers that policymakers can can pull and sort of crank out the outcome because there are so many to go back to the phrase you used earlier moving parts in the system that are relevant to this you've got the land use planning system you've got issues to do with transportation you've got all of these sorts of things that actually affect whether or not particular leveling up outcomes can be delivered so I wonder, is, is that something that you've you've thought about in terms of how to, to discuss that particular topic? And have you got any thoughts on, again, without being too specific about what you would you, you would recommend, how that kind of thinking can inform that debate, how the complex systems kind of thinking can inform the levelling up debate? Yeah, and I mean, on, on that one, I mean, there's also some risk when you've, You've got, when you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail and, and every system then looks like a complex adaptive one. Yeah. But I do think when I, I think about issues of regional regeneration or levelling up, and I look at the evidence around what works, what has worked in regenerating places, what you find is a similarly complex picture. That if there were a sort of singular solution, a single lever that could be pulled, that guarantees success, we have, we have long since, Mark, of been pulling it and we wouldn't have the problem that we have right now, which is loads of places being stuck in the mud and not and not regenerating themselves. And I mean, the way I sometimes cast the metaphor sometimes use on this when it comes to placemaking is that it is, you know, making a place is rather like making a cake yep. um, in that you need multiple ingredients combined in the right amounts in the right way if the cake is to rise. So that means you know, in some places the missing ingredient is the flour. In other places the missing ingredient is the eggs or the milk or the sugar or whatever it might be. It's always a, it, 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 it's a complex systems problem and therefore a place that is struggling is a complex needs case. It requires individual diagnosis. And when it comes to what those raw ingredients are, they are a blend of economic factors like businesses and jobs, infrastructural factors like transport links and broadband, financial factors, access to adequate money, social factors, a decent high street, green spaces, youth clubs and football clubs and museums. It requires physical capital, decent housing stock, decent uh, factories and, and, and warehouses. You take any one of those ingredients out of the mix, 
and the cake is lost, basically. And when it came to, to leveling up, when I was helping out in putting in place a framework for leveling up, that's why we defined it in terms of 12 distinct missions, which if you like, were the 12 ingredients in the cake, in the regeneration cake, recognizing it as a, a complex systems problem, albeit at the micro scale, that therefore required this kind of blended mix of policy interventions if it was to be successful. Of course, in the most left behind places, they're often missing the vast majority of the Those raw ingredients. Yeah. They need even greater amounts of intervention and TLC for the cake, for the cake to rise. So, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a lens I think that has certainly helped me make sense and indeed shift prevailing white or orthodoxy around leveling up. I think it's also relevant, you know, bring us right up to date to, to diagnosing the fragilities currently being felt by our healthcare system. So, you know, I'm in no way, shape or form a healthcare expert, but when I was just casting a little look at the end of last year at our healthcare system, I did so, you know, from a position of ignorance, but through the lens of complex systems theory. And it was very clear to me that the performance behavior of our healthcare system had many similarities, both pre and during the global financial crisis with our financial system. Low level stresses building in finance and in healthcare that are then tripped and triggered into a tailspin by a big event. Actually, not that big event, the subprime, subprime crisis for global finance, the COVID crisis for healthcare. And the result is a system that cannot easily reorganize itself, whose dynamics are then quasi-chaotic or certainly unstable. Yeah. So I, I do think this framework for thinking can provide a very different lens on making sense of what's going on, but also speaks to a rather different set of policy solutions to, to restore stability, whether it's in healthcare yeah. or any other system. Well, I think I think in both of those examples, in some ways, it, the challenges. I mean, on the one hand, especially the way you describe the leveling up problem, it sounds like something that is very much specific to particular areas. So that you know, the recipe, as you say, is going to vary according to the area, and that implies at one level quite a localized approach. That the local decision makers perhaps are more aware of what those factors may be than other more distant agents. But on the other hand, they are at the same time embedded in a system of, of national level rules or constraints yeah. that affect yeah. their capacity to respond to those local circumstances. Yeah. And although yeah. it's, a, it's a different kettle of fish, that the healthcare system has got some elements of that as well. Yes. You do have, you know, many local agencies which arguably could respond to situations that they face, but they are embedded within a higher level set of rules that may actually prevent them from doing that. And it's actually these interaction effects between the different layers of rules that is really the, the challenge to from a from a policy position, it seems. Yeah, I think I think that characterization is a very a very useful one and, and, a, and an accurate one as well. Mark, I mean what we're finding in both governance of regions and in governance of health and social care is a somewhat 
greater degree of local control, which I do think, you know, is welcome, given that whether it's local healthcare or local regeneration, uh, without detailed local knowledge of the nature of the problems, it's very difficult to diagnose a, a meaningful solution, almost impossible in fact for a, a central machine, a white or machine so to do. It also helps though, not just information, but an implementation. Because uh, if, you bar, if you bought my diagnosis of, of what levelling up requires, it requires a coordinated response across the different arms of policy. That again, is a, a nigh on impossible to execute at the central level. Hmm. I mean, the different Whitehall pillars or departments find it very difficult to, to join up and inter interact. It's much easier done locally than it is centrally. And the same thing's happening in healthcare, really. But it's easier to join up, you know, health and social care and other health-related services at the level of a city or a city region than it is at the level of the nation state. So look, there has to be a balance between national rules and local implementation. Mm. I think local implementation is absolutely the right direction of travel to, to tackle what are inherently local problems. Okay, well, Andy, we're coming towards the end of the, the discussion. I wonder if you could just say a bit now about, you know, what you're doing in this well, amazing new role that you, you have as CEO of the RSA. What, what are the kind of projects that you're you're working on at the moment, and basically what's what, what's next for you in this this life? <laughs> yeah, well, thank you, Matt. That's a big question. I don't actually got a big answer <laughs> to it. But yes, yeah, so I've been at the Rosalie Arts RSA now for for a year, and the RSA is not quite as old as the Bank of England, but we're a mere 269 years uh, old. But it has been around for quite a little while. It's a social change organisation. In terms of the social change. I'd love the RSA to affect right now. I mean, it's very much of a piece of what we'll be discussing today, actually, because we talk about complex systems, complex financial system, complex economic system, complex healthcare system, complex regional systems. In a way, I'm going to add another layer of complexity to that, actually, which is, which is the planet, which is also a complex system. And a sort of framework of thinking of the RSA about the the various crises, the poly crises we're facing right now, is to conceive of those as a, a nested system problem. So we have a set of you know, economic challenges. The economy is a complex system, but it's also a nested complex system. The economy is nested within a wider society. And we have a sort of societal, broader societal challenges beyond the economy. I mean, loneliness or mental health being cases in point. And then both the economy and wider society are of course themselves nested in the environment, mm. which as we all know, faces its, its own challenges whether it's climate change or biodiversity loss. And rather than thinking about those problems as sort of distinct and discrete, requiring distinct environmental solutions and distinct social solutions and distinct economic solutions, because those systems are so interwoven and connected, you think about solutions that join the dots between the three that are seeking 
to regenerate people and places and the planet all at once. So we at the RSA are in the regeneration game. It's not enough to sustain. You need a lot of language about sustainability. That was yesterday's agenda. We have now depleted our economic capital, our social capital, and our natural capital, the three nested systems, to such a state that sustaining that will leave all those systems fragile and vulnerable to failure. We now need actively to be replenishing, to be regenerating our economic capital, our social capital, our natural capital, given the degradation and given the depletion that's already taken place. And we at the RSA are now in the game of doing just that. What are the practical means of replenishing, of regenerating our economy, society, and planet, ideally in one fell swoop, not with discrete buckets of policies, but with system shifting strategies that would replenish all three. And, that, and that's essentially what we're about. Sounds, sounds lofty, and, and of course, it, it's a pretty big objective, but- Sounds very complex, that's what I was getting. <laughs> Well, and that's why I think we need to translate into simple interventions. The key is, however complex that nested, embedded system, we need simple interventions that can can be replenishing, regenerative of, of, all, of all three systems. And that's the game we're in as well. So simple, practical interventions. For example, a reconfiguration of our education system that among other things you know nurtures those the, the, those skills that will be transferable both through and across time that's nurturing of resilience to, to use a word we've used yeah. a lot today yeah. that's nurturing of creativity yeah. that's nurturing of social connectivity uh and uh, and the like so that's the game we're in it's a complex challenge but we're seeking simple solutions to that complex challenge in the same spirit as we did with finance 15 years ago, Mark. Well, it sounds like a very fascinating and exciting agenda and look forward to see how that unfolds in the, well, the coming, coming years. Very exciting indeed. So thanks very much for taking the time out to, to talk to us today, Andy. I know you're very busy, so it's been really great fun. So thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you, Mark. I really enjoyed our chat. It's unfinished business. I hope those listening in can, can can help actually and solve some of these complex challenges. I mean, there's a lot of doom and gloom right now about those challenges. I understand why that exists, but it also gives us a huge opportunity to come up with creative solutions to them. And, and what better time, what better endowment than that? Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks.